Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Elmore. My guest today is Diana Chow, founder and executive director of Letters to Strangers, a nonprofit that seeks to destigmatize mental illness and increase access to affordable, quality mental health treatment for young people. Diana has a really unique story. She grew up with bipolar disorder and complex PTSD. After surviving a series of suicide attempts, Diana found healing from an unexpected source writing. In writing letters to strangers, Diana realized she was not alone and later founded the youth-run organization Letters to Strangers. Diana has been honored by two U.S. presidents at the White House, was the winner of the Princess Diana Awards in 2021, was the youngest ever winner of the Unilever Young Entrepreneurs Award, and gave a TEDx teen speech at the PlayStation Theater in Times Square to a standing ovation. In addition to mental health advocacy, Diana worked for NASA, published a novel at the age of 13, and also received recognition from the U.S. Navy for her work on dengue fever. Diana is an award-winning artist and a conceptual photographer as well. We're so honored to have Diana with us here today to share her story and learn more about her nonprofit organization, Letters to Strangers. Welcome, Diana. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's my honor and pleasure. What a background. I'm so astonished by all of the things (laughs) you've done and all of the awards you've gotten. It's very impressive. I'm amazed you guys like dug all this up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it's it's great. I mean, you really do have quite the history there. Are there any of those accolades or experiences that stand out the most for you? I'm just curious. I can't lie. Like being honored by the president at the White House is pretty cool. You know, as an immigrant, it's something that I don't take lightly. You know, it's a symbol not just for me, but for my entire community as well. That's amazing. Yes, honestly. Well, we're here today to talk about Letters to Strangers. Can you just explain a little bit of what that is for our audience? What What is Letters to Strangers? Letters to Strangers is a global youth-run mental health nonprofit. So uh, like you mentioned before, we seek to destigmatize mental illness and increase access to affordable and quality treatment for young people. Uh, the definition for young people varies, especially from country to country, but overall, if you consider yourself young, why not, right? Our benefit, our resources can benefit everyone. So our main pathways include our, of course, namesake anonymous letter writing exchange, uh, which happened through our online platform for the general public. And then in chapters, which are basically branches on student campuses. Um, and then our second pathway is our science-based peer education, including a curriculum. And then the third pathway is our grassroots policy-based advocacy. So that includes our efforts on the ground, including building hotlines or building committees to reform mental health care and policies in a school or community, et cetera. Wow. Yeah, so great. And, and tell us more about the inspiration behind Letters to Strangers. How did this come about? So... When I was about nine years old, my parents, my brother and I, we emigrated to the U.S. I was born in a rural village in the poorest province of China. And I grew up with a lot of violence in my family, but especially violence against me because I was a girl. Mm-hmm. And so as I was navigating that household and also what it meant to grow up under the poverty line as an immigrant with parents who didn't speak English, eventually... I developed or at least was found to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder and then later complex PTSD. 
This process was complicated by an eye disease I got around the time of um, 13, 14-ish, where I got uveitis, which is an eye disease that made me go episodically blind whenever an episode struck. Mm-hmm. So I spent about half of high school in and out of the hospital going blind. And everything together just led me to believe that I didn't deserve the air that I breathed, that it was all somehow my fault, and that the only thing I could do was to rid the earth of the pollutant that is myself. And that is when I started to end my own life. But then on my final attempt, my little brother, who I was the guardian for, um, he was the one who found me. And at the time, I didn't know how to care about myself, but I cared about him. So I needed to heal. I wanted to heal, if at least not for myself in that moment, then for him. So that's when I started trying a lot of different methods to find healing. But I think a lot of those things felt very inaccessible due to language, cultural, financial barriers, even generational barriers. So that's when I started writing letters. And through writing letters to strangers, I discovered my own voice. And I felt that I could be so kind and empathetic to these people I never even met. So why couldn't I do the same for myself? And that's when I developed the personal model that writing is humanity distilled into ink. And that's the uh, sort of inspiration behind why I started letters to strangers as a student club at my high school. Wow. Thank you for being so vulnerable and raw and sharing that. I mean, you definitely have been through quite a lot. And I I love these stories where we see post-traumatic growth, right? We can't control what traumas come our way, but it's always so beautiful to see people who are resilient and find their way through that and then use the traumas and the experiences they've had to help others and to heal. And that's exactly what your organization is doing. And I do think there is something so beautiful about writing because it's an art form, but it's also a way that you can share things that you normally wouldn't share, maybe face-to-face or just in casual conversation. It can go very deep, very quickly. And so I think that's just so fitting that you found through writing this connection with people you've never even met. And so (laughs) hence the name, Letters to Strangers. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Do you want to talk a little bit? You don't have to, but if you want to share a little bit more about the, the first letter. So how did you end up? You know, did you just write a letter and mail it to somebody unusual or, you know, help me understand a little bit of the the process behind where it became letters instead of just sort of writing for yourself? Yeah. So at first I was tasked with, you know, writing the journal for my English class. And this was back in eighth grade. So this was before Letters Strangers was a thing. I realized that I was in many ways, like many other people, my own worst enemy. And so when I was writing these journals, I really wanted it to help me, but I kept on spiraling into these holes that I couldn't dig myself out of. Mm-hmm. And then when I started to one day write to just somebody who I felt like maybe for the first time in my life could just listen and not judge me and maybe truly care about me, I started to write in a way I'd never done so before where I was writing about my own feelings, yes, but I wasn't just reflecting on it. I felt like I was talking to someone about it. And I felt like I owed an obligation to the person to try to continue this story. Because it's like, you don't want to like, you know, have like a movie and then, you know, like have someone just end it on like a cliffhanger. You want there to be some sort of next step. And I, through that sort of almost like obligation to a stranger of sorts, uh, found my own desire to continue that story. And that's why writing letters became something so healing powerful for me. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense because yes, free writing can sometimes just go down a very dark hole. I think you said like a black hole. I think that's what you said. And it is true, just sort of spiral sometimes. So that makes sense that writing to a person, whether they be imaginary or real, it sort of contains your narrative 
and pushes you to make sense of it and have a resolution or at least move it forward instead of getting stuck. I think that's really beautiful. What else about the letter writing process did you find healing or helpful? So I'm part of Generation Z and I think with my generation and younger, you know, we really grew up in many places, very used to the internet. And what that implies for a lot of us is, for example, very fast typing speeds, being very used to having that be the main way of communication to the point where, of course, I type faster than I handwrite, but that also means that I oftentimes type faster than I think. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm forced to handwrite and slow down and think about each stroke, and especially if I'm writing with a pen and I can't just you know erase or backspace or whatever, it really forces me to actively think about what it is that I actually want to communicate. It forces me to condense the rambling in my head into something that other people can understand. And in doing so, something that I myself can understand. And so that, I think, was the first step for me to realize that this blob of exploding emotions and feelings was something that's conquerable because I could put it into a form I can finally see with my own eyes. Powerful. It's very powerful. Yeah. And and so then you're in your class, eighth grade, and you're writing this letter and you realize, wow, this is really working. This is helping me understand everything in a different way. I like how you're speaking about how it helped you almost focus on treating yourself the way you would want to treat others, or at least care for yourself the way you would care for others. Cause that is very the hallmark of depression, right? Is everything gets so inward and there isn't a lot of motivation to care for ourselves. So I love that the externalization of letter writing was a way you found your way out of, as you said, the blob in your mind. <laughs> so you're in, you're in your eighth grade class, you're figuring this out. How did you take it from there into this huge nonprofit and then end up at the White House? I mean, what, were, what, what was, I guess, the next step to make it more of a program? I think you mentioned you brought it to your school, right? Was that the next thing that you did? Yeah, it's been a very wild journey. So I would say that when I first started writing those uh, letters in that eighth grade class, I didn't really realize what I was doing yet. And then I started to recognize the healing power of it. As I got my eye disease diagnosis and I survived my suicide attempt, these things made me realize that that those letters were not just something stupid and small, but that they could actually be something that if they can help me heal, help other people find their own voice as well. So that's why I started as a student club in my high school. And at first I had to, you know, bribe my friends with free pizza to come to the lunch meetings. But then people started showing up even when there wasn't any pizza. That's and then, when you know it's a real club. It's when people exactly. show up without food. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, especially when you're hungry teenagers, you know? And, and then someone from a nearby school heard about what we were doing and they contacted me and asked if they could bring it, um, letters to strangers, that is, to their school. And so then I was like, okay, well, I guess I have to like standardize this somehow to be like a copyable program. Mm. So then that's the first chapter of Letters to Strangers that was established. And then over time, as we got more and more of these requests, um, I started to really format it into like, let's say our website, our social media presence, things like that, to have it be a hub of sorts that people can go towards and just really understand in a quite easy and an accessible way how they can get involved very quickly. And I think what's really nice about Letters to Strangers, like the concept itself, is that you don't need much to get started, right? Like as long as you have like some sort of writing utensil and something to write on, you can get started. And that was something so helpful for a lot of people, especially in other countries where before they thought of mental health as something that was like this big, impenetrable topic. But now you can just write and you can get started with that conversation. 
So I think that's what drew a lot of people, especially also because for many people, it was the first time they saw someone who kind of looked like them being open, talking about this stuff. And of course, I still felt ashamed in many cases, but it also made me and them feel less alone at the same time, you know? So I think all of those things combined together help Letter to Strangers grow and then eventually become what it is today, the largest global youth for youth mental health nonprofit. It's amazing. Yeah. And that that is no small thing. I mean, there is always some stigma around mental health, but there, certainly there are some cultures we have data to support this where it, it is so much more shameful to speak about mental health issues. And so mm-hmm. I love that you're able to reach that population and make it more accessible. I mean, there's so much healing that happens just from being able, as you know, to connect with someone, even if it's mm-hmm. a stranger. Yeah. Um, can you say a little more about the curriculum, I guess I would call it, because you said you had to standardize this process. So, you know, without giving away too many secrets, but what is it, what does it really look like? Or how did you take this very artistic, intuitive process and make it more streamlined? Yeah. So when you said curriculum, I thought about our science-based peer education curriculum. So I'll talk about that too, I guess. But first, regarding the letter writing, basically we have our own protocol that we've developed and refined over the years. And people follow the protocol. So there are things to do in the first meeting to guarantee the safety of the writers while they retain their anonymity. And then when they are part of a chapter, there's going to be someone, usually the chapter leader or another student who goes through our moderation training to learn what to look out for when they moderate a letter. And then there will be, let's say, bi-monthly or however frequent they do the letter exchange, themes and guiding questions that every person gets. And then they have some time to write their letter. They submit it. Those letters get read over by the moderator anonymously. And then when they meet back up, the letters get exchanged anonymously and randomly with each other or with a partner site. And then there's a peer discussion led by the moderator and other club leaders afterwards where people can talk about the writing process both for themselves and also what they read in other people's letters. So it gives them an ability to share some of their own thoughts and also do it in a way that feels safe because it's anonymous, but then they are all connected with the same and guiding questions and the peer discussion to still be able to have some sort of peer support in a very vocal way. And then our curriculum, we wrote the world's first Youth for Youth Mental Health Guidebook. It's like this 500-page, fully illustrated A to Z of mental health, diving deep into intersectionalities as well as the basic foundations. And we also created a teacher's curriculum guide to accompany it. And right now we're working with a foundation uh, in Nepal that is working in conjunction with the Nepali government to teach 10,000 high school students in mental health with our curriculum by the end of this year. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Nearly nine in 10 registered voters believe the nation faces a mental health crisis, according to a new USA Today Suffolk University poll. Americans are more concerned than ever about their mental health. Mental health first aid provides the resources and training to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges. It provides the confidence and skills needed to offer life-saving assistance, and it provides peace of mind. Our experts provide mental health first aid training for adults, teens, caregivers, veterans, law enforcement, EMS, and school faculty. Mental health concerns are on the rise, but evidence-based training through mental health first aid can make a difference. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org to find a course near you or email hello at mentalhealthfirstaid.org to schedule a training. Courses are available for individuals, groups, organizations, and companies of all sizes. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org and make a difference in your community. 
Wow. Very impressive. Very, very impressive. <laughs> I feel like I'm speaking to somebody who's like six years old. <laughs> I'm just so amazed at all you've accomplished in such a short time. <laughs> I don't know. My soul feels old. And besides, it's been like t- almost 10 years now, you know, like I, know. I feel yeah. like I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> Well, yeah, and it, and it shows. I mean, you're very you're very clear on on what it is, and you can tell that your heart and soul is in it, but also that it's kind of a well oiled machine at this point, which is great. I, I said that jokingly, but you have been through more than some people have been in sixty years, so you you've earned your your depth, which is definitely <laughs> helping other people. <laughs> I was gonna ask these meetings: are they in person? Are they virtual? A combination? How does how does it look? Chapter meetings are usually in person. We really appreciate having that, you know, in person peer to peer discussion. But after COVID, of course, many things did shift online. So that's also when we started our digital platform for the general public to use. Because previously, all of our letter exchanges were restricted to just the chapters. And then with the digital platform, people who are not part of a chapter can also submit letters. We have rotating things and guiding questions on there. There's some moderation process on there. Uh, some of our chapters use the platform itself as a means of exchanging their letters. Only thing missing from that is, um, you know, that peer-to-peer element um, that follows the letter exchange, which is why we still recommend people partaking a chapter, if at all possible, since we do think that's a big component of it. But yeah, you know, there's a mix and we try to have as many people get engaged and involved as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you do this? I mean, you're saying words like we and us, and you know, it's clear you have a team and support. Mm-hmm. You didn't just do it all by yourself, <laughs> but how did you do this? I mean, it was, it was just such a great idea. And how did you go from doing it by yourself or maybe just at your school to getting support and making it so large? And I know you definitely worked online, you said, and made a website and social media presence, but then did you get a team to help you research and write this curriculum or did you really do it all yourself? So I would say I did do most of this myself, especially for the first, like, you know, six years or so. And I really don't want this to be the case because I think there's so much valuable insights from other people that I myself would miss out on. But it was just very, very, very hard to find people who are willing to be dedicated, committed, Mm. and also who, to be honest, wouldn't take advantage of me. Because as a young Asian female uh, navigating this space, I ran into many, many cases where people would take advantage in many different ways. But I think I'm very lucky now that I do have a team where in basically all different time zones, it's very crazy, but I think it really reflects the values we hold as an organization that we really want this to be a truly global movement and we are all fighting for the same goals. And, you know, we're all under the age of 25. You know, it's all something that we're learning and growing, but also trying to expand upon at the same time. (laughs) Honestly, it's amazing though. And, and I get what you're saying where you, you would have rather not maybe shouldered all of that on your own, but I, but I am glad that you did. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing you've done and it's clearly got all that research background in it as well. And so it's, it's great to see that it, it really just came from your experience and then helped your small school and then branched out to other schools. And now it's this huge <laughs> worldwide time zone crossing helpful platform. Um, yeah. oh, well, I will say, though, that like, obviously, you know, we take the research and academic integrity of 
our work very seriously. So yes. whenever there's things that deal with, you know, scientific facts and all of that, we make sure that we have a solid advisory council of medical and industry professionals who review everything. So, you know, I don't want people to like dismiss what we did because like, oh, it's a bunch of kids writing random stuff. It's not that, I promise. <laughs> I think anyone listening doesn't think of you as just a kid. I think they can tell that you're very accomplished. And yes, I hear you. Yeah, it, it's clear that although maybe the idea started from inspiration or your experience, it's definitely now like a curriculum. And, you know, you've done TED Talks, you've won the Oprah Magazine, Legacy winner of the Princess Diana Award. You know, the, these things check out as <laughs> making it very, very sincere and standing alone against research. So, and there is a lot of psychological research that we know that shows just having connection is the biggest thing to healing. We even talk about that as far as finding a therapist. There's so many different ways that you can do therapy, but the mm. the research has isolated the healing element is not what type of therapy you're doing. It's the connection that you have with a therapist. And so there's just a ton of research showing that even if you just form a connection, whether it's to someone you know, someone you don't know, there's so much healing power in that if it's a good connection. And really, that's what you're facilitating through all of this. Thank you. You got it. <laughs> that's what we're yeah. trying to do. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's pretty great. Well, tell us, do you have any hallmark stories of people who have joined into Letters to Strangers and had a good experience or maybe life-changing experience? What are some of the things that people are saying after they connect to Letters to Strangers? There's so many and like it's really wonderful and mind-blowing and humbling whenever I think about this. I, I think there's two that I can like share right now. So a few years ago, I got an email from um, someone who was a 14-year-old adopted Chinese girl and she was feeling very alone and very confused about her racial identity, uh, where she belonged in the world. She had been hospitalized for suicide attempts. It was a very dark time for her. But after she heard about Letters to Strangers and then, you know, started getting involved with us, she, she's, she's really, I don't want to like put words in her mouth, but like, you know, she's really turned her life around. And she's going off to college now and she worked with us on our guidebook. Uh, she has been attempt free for years now. And, you know, this is just one example. But I think another thing is like, even our chapter leaders in other countries, right? Like our chapter leader in Liberia, when he first reached out to join us, he didn't plan on going to college. He was very new to, you know, youth activism. He was also just a teenager like me at the time. But now our Liberia chapter is huge. It's literally recognized by the office of the president there. And we wow. run the largest, you know, youth mental health resource center in the country and a 24 seven hotline. And like we build all of this from the ground up and oh, now he's going to college on a scholarship, you know? So Aww, yeah. all of these things are just, I think it's so amazing. Like there's so much potential in these people. And so many times we just don't give them enough chances. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. People really unfold when they are supported and have a connection. And so, I mean, you, you've seen that in your own life too, from the story you shared, right? Just, mm -hmm. just being able to know you're not alone and have someone hear your story and reflect it back and really, you know, love on you in that time, mm -hmm. it changes people. And then they're able to really show their true creativity. It sounds like you're just helping set the foundation for that. And I think it's great. You're doing that in so many different cultures. It's something that's universal, right? This need mm -hmm. to find connection. Yeah. And I mean, definitely comes with a lot of challenges. So like, you know, I've learned a lot throughout this process. <laughs> what were some of the biggest challenges getting this off the ground? If you want to share. Yeah. I mean, just speaking about culturally, gender, religion are two very big things. 
So like for me, for example, right, like it's not necessarily the Chinese culture, but just the fact that I'm a rural ethnic minority um, in our own autonomous ruling region in China, that we were very, very traditional. And so when you have a mental illness as a girl, it's not about you. It's about what is wrong with your mother. This mm. makes you unmarriageable, which makes you basically completely useless as a woman if you can't even be married and have children. And, I, you know, I grew up with so much shame because of that. And then in contrast, when you're working with, you know, the other side of the equation, you're working with very strong male figures who have their own ideas about how things should be conducted in their own chapter or whatever else. You have to find that balance. You're making sure that people's voices are being represented and heard. And then when it comes to religion, like, for example, in our guidebook, uh, we really, really try to emphasize all these learnings we've made. So, for example... We included Buddhism where we interviewed someone who was a youth leader from the kingdom of Bhutan, you know, one of the biggest Buddhist nations in the world. And then we also included youth leaders who followed the Yoruba religion in Nigeria. You know, we really want to include these different, not just folk, but also like aspects of like religion around the world. Just because, you know, so much of our healing is tied to our spirituality and too often when we talk about mental health, it's only in a very Western white perspective. And that is not reflective of the majority of people in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost reminds me of part of the AA model is the, the higher power, right? Like tying in your growth and your healing to some kind of higher power. And they, they call it higher power, but really is that kind of spirituality element. Again, because we have a lot of research, you're absolutely right that a lot of healing is spiritual, whether that's some people would identify with that as religion, others with an experience or nature or, you know, values. You, there's a lot of wide range of ways that can present itself. But yes, it is a existential process healing, <laughs> healing from those deep wounds. So I love that your program allows space for that. And I, yeah, as you're speaking about that, I can... I can only imagine how difficult that was to navigate so many different cultures and so many different perspectives and create something that would allow everyone to feel like they do have a voice and they do have a space, even with so many differing opinions and backgrounds. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we definitely, I would say, have a lot of room to grow on that, but, you know, one step at a time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, you know, your your program is made up of people and people are messy and these are hurting people, so it's not going to be perfect, but... Yeah, the the intention there, I think, is really, really wonderful and necessary to give people a place to feel that they can speak and share. Essentially, what you have is all the good elements that we would want from a group therapy situation. (laughs) (laughs) The confidentiality is going to be there and preserved because it's anonymous and people are connecting and hearing other perspectives and able to help other people heal, but then also receiving healing as well. And that's really what you want from any kind of group therapy. And you've found a very creative anonymous way to do that, which I love. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, if any of our listeners are thinking, wow, I really am interested in this. I'm really struggling. Do you have any message that you might want to share to them to help them reclaim the resiliency in their life? In terms of, you know, to some of them might be struggling. I think one thing I always tell myself nowadays is just give life a chance to prove your doubts wrong. I think for a long time, you know, people like to say, oh, it'll be okay. You know, life will work itself out and it feels so hollow. But nowadays I hang on to that, not in the sense of like, oh, it'll be okay because everything will resolve itself. That's not true. But everything will be okay in the sense that so many of us have already gone through 
really horrible things. And somehow, miraculously, maybe even we made it through and we will make it through again. And that doesn't seem possible in the moment. But I want to have faith that if I give life a chance, if I give it a few more weeks, if I give it a few more months, even a few more years, it will show me that things can get okay. And so maybe that is the hope that I just want to leave people with because that's something that I myself am trying to cling to every day. Yeah. Yeah. Hope was the word I was thinking when you were saying that. Just, you know, hold on to some hope. And like you said, doesn't mean everything's going to work out great or we won't go through really hard times or more trauma, but there's always, always good things to look forward to. Beautiful. <laughs> Where could our listeners learn more about Letters to Strangers? So our website is www.letterstostrangers.org. And that's where people can navigate to find ways they can get involved through our chapters, through our headquarters team. Uh, we are a Presidential Volunteer Service Award certified organization, so we can give out volunteer awards for people. And then if they want to follow us on social media, we are at L2S Mental Health. Only thing to note is that on social media, the two is not the word two, it's a number two, because you know, that was hip back in the day. So it just stuck. <laughs> so, yeah. Good clarification. And we'll have all of those links in the, the show documents. I know a lot of our listeners are mental health professionals themselves. If there are people that are interested in helping or maybe being, I think you use the word moderator for one of these mm. chapters, is that something that you're looking for? Or did people usually sort of start as somebody involved in that chapter and then work their way up to be a moderator? So on our online platform, we do accept, you know, public applications for moderators. So that is one way people do get involved. Another way is, you know, if people are able to contact us, we do have several openings and sometimes practitioners can work with us on helping advise, let's say a new resource we're putting out or something like that. And also sometimes practitioners like to adopt our letter writing protocol into their own practices. So if that's something that you're interested in, reach out, happy to, you know, work something out. Love that. I was thinking that too, because it overlaps very well with some of the more structured therapy options. So that's great that you're willing to give that resource. So I understand you have a youth guidebook. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is and how people can access that? Yeah. So the guidebook, it is something written entirely by young people. It's for young people technically, but I would say it's really for everyone because information in it is meant for everyone. It's just written in a friendly tone with some Gen Z lingo throwing there, you know? Uh, and so it's for free to download in black and white on our website, uh, letterstostrangers.org slash store. And then there's a physical print copy that people can purchase. We also have a teacher's curriculum that accompanies it also for free to download in black and white on the web store and purchasable for a print copy. So, you know, people are welcome to use this in their classrooms, libraries, homes, clinics, whenever they think would be interesting. Well, Diana, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really do appreciate your vulnerable story. And, you know, you didn't have to share all of that, but it really does make the experience of how you started Letter to Stranger make more sense and make it a richer story. I am sorry for the things life threw at you, but again, I admire you for what you did with it and how you built this from the ground up. And I can't even imagine what you're going to do with the next 25 <laughs> years of your life, because this is pretty spectacular. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I will say that I was very hesitant to share my story for the most part of the early Letters to Strangers journey, but I realized that so many people can relate, but they just don't hear it from other people. So they don't even know that they aren't going through it alone. And they also don't even know that it's something that maybe they shouldn't just accept as 
the way that life has to be. So that's kind of why I tell my story now. Like it's not like something that I've completely moved down from. And I do think resilience and vulnerability are very intimately tied. So as much as I'm being, you could say resilient, I'm also being very vulnerable in that sense. And it does hurt, <laughs> but I, it's worth it to me to know and to have others know that, you know, none of us are walking this earth alone. Absolutely. I'm sure, you know, Brene Brown, she, she's a shame researcher, but she yes. found that vulnerability is the way out of that. And so I think that's a beautiful tie into your earlier story where you feel like you were given so much shame and had to like claw your way out of so much shame. And you're right. Vulnerability is not fun, not easy, but <laughs> that's the, that's the only way to have a real connection. Right. So there's mm. just so much beauty and where you've come from and now where you are and how you're bringing that experience to other people who need it too. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, we're we're honored to have you. Thank you so much for sharing everything. And I, I think this will be really, really insightful. And I'm glad that we have you on our show. <laughs> thank you. I'm grateful for you guys to invite me. Yes, of course. I also want to thank our listeners for taking the time to join us today. Just a reminder that the resources for this episode and an archive of all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. And we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.